welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science and politics. Well, Vladimir Putin made it very clear, and that is he sees things with the possibility of a nuclear war. Is this just a bluff? Well, ever since he said that a few weeks ago, Pentagon planners have been dusting off old dusty books about nuclear warfare. Is it possible that by miscalculation or by a deliberate calculation, a nuclear weapon could be unleashed because of the Iranian crisis. Earlier we didn't think so, but now things are changing so rapidly, with Vladimir Putin becoming more and more desperate, it means that, well, we have to dust off all these old books about thinking about the unthinkable, nuclear warfare, because of the conflict in the Ukraine. And then we'll say some good news on the nuclear front. Not one, but two countries are now saying that they're getting closer and closer toward a workable fusion nuclear power plant. Not fission, but using hydrogen as the fuel to one day initiate the fusion era. And so we'll talk about the latest developments in fusion power. And just two years from now or so, the Europeans are going to announce in France that they've attained break-even. That is, they were able to create a fusion nuclear reactor which generates as much power as it consumes. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. Most of us, when we think about nuclear war, we think of old Cold War movies and we think about mutual assured destruction, suicide, they launch a war, we launch a nuclear attack, both of us go down in a bunch of nuclear rubble. That's the thinking of most people. But that's not the way many leaders of the world think of nuclear weapons. Many leaders of the world think of nuclear weapons as just another weapon. For example, if you read the speeches of Vladimir Putin very carefully, you realize that he doesn't simply couch it in terms of East versus West or democracy versus autocracy. That's the way President Biden phrased it. No. Vladimir Putin, if you take him as his word, if you take him in terms of what he actually says, he basically wants to restore the old greater Russia vision. So in other words, he's talking about a messianic appeal to turn back the hands of time, back to the time of Peter the Great, back to the time of, of Lenin and Stalin, to, to seize once again the mantle of the great Russian empire, almost messianic in tone. He doesn't see the Ukraine as a nation at all. However, there's also some truth to what he says, believe it or not. It is true that from his point of view, he sees NATO inching closer and closer to his borders and, well, quite frankly, there's a certain amount of justification for being fearful of NATO. After all, if Mexico, if Mexico were suddenly to
to be part of a coalition led by Russia, would we feel threatened with nuclear weapons right on the border of Texas? Yeah, I think so. But anyway, the point is that Vladimir Putin does not see it as a question of East versus West, a question of Russia versus Europe, a question of <clears throat> nationalism versus democracy. No. He sees it as restoration of greater Russia, an ideology, not just nationalism, but nationalism coded with messianic appeals. And how does nuclear weapon fit into this? Well, in the West, we think about MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. But you see, that applies to strategic nuclear weapons. That is, all-out nuclear war, when the capitals of the United States and Russia are all targeted and obliterated. No, Vladimir Putin is talking about tactical nuclear weapons, weapons that are relatively small, weapons the size of the Hiroshima bomb, weapons that are, quote, usable in a conflict. And so now people at the Pentagon are asking themselves a simple question. If Vladimir Putin is talking about using a tactical nuclear weapon, when and where would he use it? Well, first of all, let's talk about game theory and the theory behind nuclear weapons. The theory behind nuclear weapons is not really mutual assured destruction at all. It's the idea that all weapons are usable in war depending upon the circumstances. For example, that's why Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi tried to get nuclear weapons because for them, nuclear weapons made them would make them bulletproof. Well, Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi Neither of them became bulletproof. Neither of them were capable of creating an atomic bomb. And neither of them are here today to talk about it. Think about that. Because the Iranians think about that all the time. The Iranians say to themselves, how come Saddam Hussein is no longer here? What happened to Gaddafi? They were just right next door to Iran. And they don't want to be the next Saddam Hussein. They don't want to be the next Gaddafi. And that's one reason why the Iranians are defying all the sanctions that we hurled at them. And they still, in spite of all these sanctions, want the bomb. And why is that? Because they want to be bulletproof. Just like North Korea. The North Koreans can say as much nonsense as they want. But no one's going to challenge them directly, militarily, because they are bulletproof. Well... You see, Vladimir Putin is bulletproof. So why is he doing all of this? I mean, he is invulnerable. No one's going to attack uh, Vladimir Putin with nuclear weapons. So why is he engaging the wrath of the West? Well, some people say that he miscalculated. They thought that he probably he thought that he would be welcomed as a liberator by marching into the Ukraine that the Ukrainian population was secretly pro-Russian all along, and by marching into Kiev, he would then simply reestablish the vision of Peter the Great and Lenin. That's probably what was going on in his mind, that he would go down in history, because of course he's about 70 years of age now, he would go down in history in his waning years as the man who restored greater Russian power. Well, what happened? What happened, of course, is that his troops were not welcomed by the Ukrainians. They did not defect and go to his side. 
they in fact fought back heroically. So now, now that Vladimir Putin has raised the specter of a nuclear confrontation, let's talk about this. Something that we haven't talked about for many a year since the breakup of the old Soviet Union. There are theories, theories of nuclear war. And we physicists know about them because many physicists who cannot get a job as a professor work with the Pentagon designing these scenarios. So let's talk about the theories of nuclear warfare and how they may apply to the Iranian, the Ukrainian struggle. First of all, there is the madman theory. The madman theory was popularized by President Richard Nixon because he looked at how Eisenhower was able to, quote, end the Korean War. The way Nixon summed up the Korean War was that the Koreans were willing to go to the bargaining table because the United States looked crazy, looked so crazy that it would actually use nuclear weapons on the battlefield in Korea. That, said Richard Nixon, is the reason why the North Koreans went to the bargaining table. And that was his secret plan. Remember that? For those who remember the elections back then, President Nixon had a secret plan to end the Vietnam War. What was that secret plan? We now know. It was the madman theory. And that's why Richard Nixon portrayed himself as a madman, totally capable of using a nuclear weapon against Vietnam. In other words, get them to the bargaining table because they think that their adversary, Richard Nixon, is a madman. Well, some of that is being used in the Ukrainian struggle. Vladimir Putin, some people say, is deliberately, deliberately creating this crazy messianic aurora precisely to intimidate the West. Because then the West would say, uh-oh, the guy's not bluffing. The guy's off his rocker. The guy wants to use nuclear weapons. Well, anyway, that's the madman theory, the theory perfected by Richard Nixon. And of course, it never worked at all. We all know how the Vietnam War actually ended. But that's one of the theories of nuclear warfare. And some people think that Vladimir Putin is applying that as he bargains with the West. Well, there's another theory of nuclear warfare. And that theory happens to deal with use them or lose them. You see, nuclear war is different from an ordinary war. Ordinary wars take weeks to months to assemble the people, to get them ready, to plan logistics. Wars go on for years. However, nuclear warfare is push-button war. You push a button, and about uh, 30 minutes later, Moscow or Washington, D.C. is totally vaporized. So how much warning do you get? You just get a few minutes warning. And if you make a mistake, if you think that large object on the radar screen is a large bird or a Soviet missile, the fate of your country depends on what that blip on the radar screen is. If that blip on a radar screen is a missile headed toward Washington, D.C., there's enormous pressure on you to retaliate and push your button. But what happens if it was just a big bird, that the Russians did not launch a preemptive first strike, then of course you've doomed humanity on the basis of a theory. Well, this is the use them or lose them strategy. And that is in a push button war, you simply don't have time to rationally calculate the odds that it's a bird 
or an ICBM coming toward Washington, D.C. So in other words, launch on warning. As soon as you get a warning that somebody else has launched, you launch on that warning. That takes us closer and closer to a hair-trigger nuclear war. And guess what? That is a strategy being used by the United States and also by the Indians and the Pakistanis and other nuclear-armed nations. They adopt a use-em-or-lose-em strategy because if they wait too long, then their missiles may get preempted and they're doomed. So there's pressure on them to fire first. That's dangerous. That's perhaps the most dangerous strategy of all. Use them or lose them. In other words, preempt. As soon as you think, as soon as you think that blip on a radar screen is really a missile headed toward Washington, D.C. Well, in order to break out of these two theories, President Ronald Reagan proposed a third theory, and that is Star Wars. So in other words, let's go for broke for peace. Build a shield around the United States so we are invulnerable. Well, in principle, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with being peacefully invulnerable with a Star Wars shield that can shoot down Russian missiles? Sounds great, right? But look at it from the Russian point of view. From the Russian point of view, they've spent billions of dollars building their nuclear arsenal. And if all of a sudden the United States creates a bulletproof shield around it, then all your weapons are useless. And then the United States can strike any time it wants. So in other words, a Star Wars shield is a first strike weapon or can be viewed as a first strike weapon. So the people who build a Star Wars shield may in fact be peaceful, have peaceful intentions to be basically a peaceful nation. But that's not the way the Russians will look at it. They see that all their nuclear weapons will become useless, and that puts pressure on them to preempt, to preempt before the United States has a totally bulletproof shield. Well, President Ronald Reagan set into motion the Star Wars program. It has had fits and starts, wasted billions of dollars, and has still not fielded a Star Wars shield that is invulnerable against a Russian attack. But what has the Russian response been? The Russian response has been hypersonic drones. So let me explain. A Star Wars shield can shoot down a nuclear weapon in the final minutes before it hits the target. Therefore, a Star Wars shield has to be able to lock on to a missile to knock it out in the final minutes of its trajectory. But what happens if that missile can maneuver? What happens if that incoming missile, just minutes before touchdown, can wander left and right and evade a Star Wars shield? It wouldn't cost much to do that. To build a Star Wars shield would cost hundreds of billions of dollars because it has to be 100% effective. You cannot allow even one nuclear weapon headed toward Moscow or Washington, D.C. to penetrate. It has to be 100% efficient or is totally useless. Well, that's why the hypersonic drone could be a very cheap, very cheap way to nullify a multi-billion dollar Star Wars shield. All the hypersonic weapon has to do is maneuver to hit its target. And 
Not 100% accuracy, but just a few percent. That's enough to knock out Moscow or knock out Washington, D.C. So hypersonic weapons are cheap, and that's why the Russians, the Chinese, are aiming toward hypersonic weapons. You see, they cannot afford to build a Star Wars shield. A, it's too expensive, and B, they really doubt whether they can have a 100% invulnerable Star Wars shield. Not 99, 100% is that 1% could break out and knock out Washington or, or Moscow or Beijing. So that's why the Russians and the Chinese are going for hypersonic weapons, because these weapons are maneuverable. These weapons can actually be used to nullify a multi-billion dollar Star Wars shield. That's the strategy of Russia and China. Well, these are strategic nuclear weapons. Now let's talk about tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield. People who do wargaming also wargame tactical nuclear war. And some of them, either, even though we're not sure it's actually going to happen that way, some of them believe that in the opening shots of a tactical nuclear confrontation, there'll be a warning shot. Because, of course, once tactical nuclear weapons are used, the other side can panic and hit the button to use strategic nuclear weapons to knock out the capital of the other side. And so then the question is, what will the enemy tolerate? The enemy may tolerate one nuclear weapon going off on top of the battlefield. So this is what the United States generals are saying, that the most likely scenario is, if Vladimir Putin is right about using nuclear weapons, he will most likely fire a tactical nuclear weapon over a battlefield or over a deserted parking lot, for that matter. doesn't matter. It's a warning shot. But, well, what happens if that warning shot is not construed as a warning shot? What happens if the other side thinks that that is the harbinger of a first strike with strategic nuclear weapons? Well, then you can imagine the chaos that's going to erupt. And so some people are saying that it's simply too dangerous to even contemplate launching a nuclear weapon, a tactical nuclear weapon, over the battlefield. But then again, that's what Vladimir Putin's advisors are probably talking to him about right now. And that is, what happens if the campaign against Ukraine goes bad? Well, as I said before, Vladimir Putin's thinking is not the thinking of President Biden. The thinking of Vladimir Putin is that he wants to restore greater Russia. He wants to restore the Russia of Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, restore the Russia of Lenin, restore the mantle of the great protector of the Slavic people. So some people are saying, oh my God, this could go out of control. This talks about reversing all the gains of the Cold War, putting us back on a super Cold War status. I mean, this goes on and on. This could go on for decades and decades. A new world order is at stake. Well, let's hope it doesn't get to that, because if, if tactical nuclear weapons are used on the battlefield, even if it's a bluff, even if it's just a warning, chances are some young military person will panic, or maybe even the president will panic, and authorize a first strike. 
knowing that if they wait too long, then there could be a missile headed for their living room, in which case they're not going to be around to contemplate the pros and cons of a nuclear strike. Well, these are all scenarios now being worked out at the Pentagon. These are scenarios that we didn't think we would have to think about because the Cold War is over, for God's sake. But like I said before, MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction, is really not what the generals think about. To them, a nuclear weapon is just that, a nuclear weapon. It is a weapon of war. Just like all weapons of war, they can be used on the battlefield. And that's what the textbooks say, the textbooks concerning thinking about the unthinkable. Well, let's shift gears and talk about some of the good sides of nuclear energy. And this is fusion power. You know, fission power got a black eye because of so many accidents. We had Three Mile Island back in 1979 here in the United States. We had Chernobyl, the mother of all nuclear accidents in 1986. And then just recently, we had the reactor accident at Fukushima, where we had not one, not two, but three. Three nuclear fuel cores liquefy. Think about that. Liquefaction of the fuel rods. That's how hot it got at Fukushima. In fact, it got so bad that there were even plans to evacuate Tokyo. Can you imagine the chaos and the tremendous disruption would take place if they had to evacuate Tokyo? Boggles the mind. Well, anyway, fusion is different. Fission uses the breakup uranium, and that breakup causes tremendous amounts of nuclear waste to form. That nuclear waste generates heat. That heat is the heat that drives these nuclear accidents. And the waste itself, of course, <coughs> has to be sequestered from civilization for millions of years. That's the legacy of nuclear energy in terms of fission power. Fusion is different. <coughs> fusion power uses seawater, the hydrogen in seawater as the fuel. How much nuclear waste does it create? A little bit, but just basically the irradiation of the steel. Helium, the byproduct of fusion, is actually commercially valuable. You can actually sell helium on the open market. And it doesn't, fusion power does not exacerbate global warming because there's no carbon dioxide to speak of. Fusion power cannot have a meltdown. If you have a problem with a fusion reactor, the process simply shuts off. That's right. It simply shuts itself off, and there's your accident. No meltdown. Well, no nuclear waste, no meltdown, unlimited energy in the form of hydrogen from seawater. So what's the bad news? If fusion is so great, then why, why don't we have it uh, you know, 20 years ago? Well, there's a problem, and that is the stability of the plasma. You have to heat hydrogen gas to tens of millions of degrees, hotter than the surface of the sun, in fact, in order to get the hydrogen to fuse to create helium. Therefore, stability is the main problem. You have to contain it in a magnetic field. The magnetic field is quite irregular in shape. It's shaped like a donut, in fact. And it's very hard to create a stable magnetic field to contain super hot plasma gas inside a fusion reactor. Well, how does the sun do it? 
The sun does it effortlessly by gravity. Gravity is unipolar. Therefore, you can squeeze one pole of the sun to raise the temperature so that you get ignition. It happens all by itself. You don't even have to calculate anything. That's why we have stars. But a fusion plant, you have to squeeze it in the shape of a donut. That is really hard. Think of a balloon, a long balloon, and you wind it up into a donut. If you squeeze one side of the donut, the other side bulges out. Now, given that fact, try to squeeze the entire donut evenly. Well, you can't. Every time you squeeze it one way, it pops out the other way. You try to squeeze that and it pops out a third way. So that's the problem with fusion plants, the stability of the fusion process. We want to make it stable for about one second. There's something called break-even or Q. Q is a number. When Q is equal to one, that means you generate as much energy output as you put in on the input. Q is equal to 1. So Q is equal to the output divided by the input in terms of energy. Well, right now, our best reactor is at about Q equals 0.7. So the amount of energy you get is only 70% of the energy that went into it. So it's a losing proposition. But in France, we have the ITER fusion reactor being backed by 35 nations, including the United States, the European Union, Japan, Korea. All these nations are helping to foot the bill because they want to reap the benefits of unlimited power almost for free. So what's the good news? Well, the good news is that both in England and in China, they have prototypes of a miniature version of the ITER fusion reactor and they have registered tremendous breakthroughs with Q. Q is getting closer and closer to one. And, well, let's not get our hopes up, but if everything goes well, we should hit break-even in about two years' time. Two to three years, we should hit break-even. But then commercialization. Commercialization of nuclear will probably take another 10, 15 years. So what's the upshot of all this? The upshot is that we may have commercially viable fusion reactors before mid-century. Well, that's a lot of time to wait. In the meanwhile, the Earth is heating up. In the meantime, we're getting deeper and deeper into global warming. But the white night, the white night if there is one, could be fusion power. The power of the sun on the Earth. Unlimited energy almost for free. Seawater as the basic fuel for fusion plants. At least that's the hope. Let's cross our fingers because the fate of the earth could be at stake.
Welcome back to Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. In the second half of Exploration, we're going to talk about a recent non-discovery made by astronomers in Australia. They scanned 140 stars toward the center of the Milky Way galaxy in the direction of the constellation Sagittarius, trying to find signals, signals of intelligent civilizations talking to each other. In other words, we want to eavesdrop, eavesdrop on alien conversations. Given the fact that there are 4,000 exoplanets that have been discovered so far, given the fact that on average, every single star you see at night has a planet going around it on average, given all these facts, then here is the Fermi Paradox. Where are they? The galaxy should be teeming with life forms, according to most calculations, and yet so far we pick up nothing. Well, now the people at the SETI Institute, in conjunction with astronomers in Australia, scanned 140 stars toward the center of the Milky Way galaxy recently, hoping to find some semblance, some message between alien civilizations. And they found nothing. Sorry about that. So there's something going on here. Is it because the aliens are out there, but they simply don't want to make contact with us? Or maybe, just maybe, we're the only one in town that has intelligence in this galaxy. But with us today, once again, is astronomer Dr. Seth Shostak, director of the SETI Institute. And we're going to ask him a simple question. First of all, we communicate by sound. Then, of course, with the discovery of radio, we began to use radio. Now we use uh, wireless technology. And, well, maybe the aliens don't use radio. Maybe they're way past radio in terms of how they communicate. So the question is, how do you think they would communicate? And are we barking up the wrong tree? Well, that's actually a good point because, of course, you know, the aliens haven't sent us a fax telling us where on the dial they might be broadcasting. So you have to sort of second guess what, what frequencies, what part of the dial makes sense. And uh, that idea had already been explored, even though Frank Drake didn't know that, by a couple of guys who at that point were at Cornell University, a couple of physicists by, by the name of uh, Giacconi and, uh, sorry, Cocconi, Giuseppe Cocconi and uh, Philip Morrison. Anyhow, these two guys had already thought about what frequencies make sense if you're going to send messages between the stars. And they said, well, look, there's kind of a natural uh, answer to that because there's one frequency everybody will know, and it turns out to be 1420 megahertz on the dial. You might think, well, what's special about that? It turns out that hydrogen, which is by far the, the overwhelmingly most common element in the, uh, in the universe, hydrogen naturally emits some radio emission at 1420 megahertz. So all astronomers, you know, of any sophistication in the universe will know about this frequency. So they said, look, that's a natural frequency. Everybody will have it marked on their radio dial. Let's try listening there. Frank Drake came to the same conclusion rather independently. And so the first experiments were done usually with a, with a receiver that only had one channel. It could only listen to one channel at a time, just like your auto radio, um, and, and, and set that frequency somewhere near this 1420 megahertz magic frequency on the dial. Now, as time went on, 
this kind of experiment became much more sophisticated. Today, uh, the receivers that are used for SETI listen simultaneously to tens of millions of channels at once because, you know, you don't know exactly which, which frequency might be the one they're using, but they tend to look at still at that part of the dial around 14, 20 megahertz. Not always. Sometimes they'll do experiments where they're looking elsewhere, but usually you're covering uh, maybe 1,000 or 2,000 megahertz around that frequency. So, you know, it's a small fraction of the dial, but it seems to be a pretty good one. No, one, no one's ever come up with a better argument about where to tune. Okay, now let's talk about Drake's equation, which is taught in every elementary astronomy course as scientists try to get a reasonable scientific estimate of the probability of intelligent races throughout the, the galaxy. So tell us a little bit about uh, Drake's equation. Well, the equation actually has an interesting history, or at least semi-interesting. <laughs> Frank Drake had done that first listening experiment in the spring of 1960. So, gosh, that's 45 years ago. It was in April, I think, 1960. Anyhow, so that generated a lot of interest. I mean, he didn't find the aliens, but it generated a heck of a lot of interest. And so the next year, he had a meeting, also in West Virginia, at the observatory, uh, in which he invited all the kind of professional scientists who who were interested in this work. That, that, that total was like 10 or 12 or something. It was mm-hmm. a fairly small number. And as an agenda, he was, you know, he's sitting around thinking, well, this meeting's come up, coming up in a couple of weeks. I need an agenda. So as an agenda for this meeting, he wrote down this very simple equation, which has subsequently become known as the Drake equation. And all it does is try to estimate something called N, where N is the number of, uh, number of civilizations in our galaxy, just let's confine ourselves to our galaxy, that are broadcasting right now. So the, the number of, of star systems, if you will, that are producing signals now that we could detect. Now, clearly, that depends on, well, how many stars are there in the galaxy, and what fraction of those have planets, and what fraction of those planets have produced life, and what fraction of those that have produced life have produced intelligent life, and what fraction of those that produce technology, and what fraction of those? Those are actually on the air right now. Okay, so it's a whole string of terms. There are actually seven terms in the equation. You can find it in almost any textbook on, uh, on astronomy. And that's the Drake equation. And it, it would be great because it would tell you, you know, what are your chances of success? I mean, if N is only a few, then the chances that you'll find these guys is pretty small. But if N are thousands or millions or some very large number, uh, Carl Sagan thought that the value of N was several million. Well, if that's true, then, you know, you have a pretty good chance of tripping across the signal sooner or later. So, unfortunately, of course, we don't know what N is. There are a bunch of terms in the equation that we simply don't know. So it's more of a, a talking point kind of thing than it is an equation that you can actually solve or use. Other scientists say bah humbug. Uh, we had uh, Professor Brownlee on our airwaves um, about a year and a half ago. And he said that Drake's equation is flawed. Flawed because there are new astronomical bits of information that show that, well, uh, to get life is more difficult than we thought. Uh, he mentions, for example, that you need a large moon. Uh, without a large moon, the Earth would eventually tumble in its orbit and uh, over mil- hundreds of millions of years, and that would make DNA impossible. Uh, he also mentioned the fact that at one point the entire Earth was frozen over. We were snowball Earth. And again, DNA would be very hard to get off the ground under those circumstances. Uh, he mentions you have to have a large Jupiter in order to clean out the debris of the solar system. He also mentions you have to be a certain distance from the center of the black hole at the center of the galaxy. Otherwise, you get fried by being too close 
to this very radioactive core at the center of the galaxy. But if you're too far out, uh, then there are not enough heavy elements uh, to create uh, DNA and uh, higher molecules. So, well, what are your thoughts? Is the Earth, in some sense, unique, as uh, Professor Brownlee was hinting at? Or do you think uh, N is quite large, as Carl Sagan believed? Well, of course, nobody knows. So everything I'm going to tell you is my opinion on this, okay. obviously. Good enough. If, if we knew the answer, we wouldn't be discussing it. But um, it's true. Don Brownlee and uh, his colleague Peter Ward at the University of Washington up in Seattle wrote this book about five years ago called Rare Earth, in which they had indeed, as you indicated, kind of a laundry list of uh, you know reasons why Earth might not be just a run-of-the-mill planet. Earth might be very, very special, so special that, in fact, Although there might be some other life out there, it's not going to be very sophisticated life. It isn't going to be intelligent life. And so our SETI experiments are kind of a waste of time. That, that was their thesis. And since this was reviewed, by the way, in the New York Times, uh, this book got a lot of play. And, uh, but if you actually look at this laundry list, you find that the items on it are not terribly convincing. Uh, but let, let's take a couple of the ones you named, for example. The fact that the Earth has a large moon, which kind of stabilizes the spin of the Earth. Okay. Now, if we didn't have that large moon, and by the way, a large moon is kind of a rare thing. You, you know, Mercury doesn't have a large moon, has no moons. Venus doesn't have a large moon, has no moons. Mars has a couple of moons. You could walk around in an afternoon, tiny moons, they don't help. Earth, on the other hand, among the rocky planets, is the only one to have a, have a large moon. Okay. And sure, it does stabilize the Earth's spin. But if you took that moon away, uh, yes, well, the Earth wouldn't, you know, just go completely nuts. Every now and again, the North Pole would come down to, you know, Connecticut or some other place, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. But it would take hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of years to do that, right? So it's such a slow event that even, you know, for, even for complicated life like freshwater otters or whatever, right, they, they can just walk away from that problem. If you've got 100,000 years, you know, before the North Pole gets to you, you have plenty of time to move. I mean, that isn't fatal to life. That's not fatal. It might be an inconvenience, you know, if you had a society with a lot of cities, you might not want it to happen. But it's so slow. It's not fatal. Now, uh, here's another another thing in your list there. You mentioned we're fortunate to have Jupiter because Jupiter has cleaned out the inner solar system of all these big rocks that otherwise might, you know, slam into your planet and ruin the whole day just the way it happened 65 million years ago, taking out the dinosaurs and 75% of all other species. Well, sure. Uh, but on the other hand, big Jupiters are not rare. We know that. In fact, all the planets we've found around other stars are like Jupiter are bigger. Right? So big planets are not rare. But even even aside from that, you could argue that maybe life on Earth would have gotten a little bit farther had we not had such a big planet as Jupiter out there, because, in fact, you know, if the dinos had been wiped out 50 million years earlier, we would be 50 million years ahead of where we are today. We'd have the cure for death, whatever, you know. It would be, maybe we'd be better off. So I don't find that a very convincing argument. I mean, you, you can look at each one of these arguments. Uh, the snowball Earth, yes, there's some evidence, although it's, it's somewhat controversial, but there's some evidence that there was a time a few billion years ago when the entire Earth was encrusted with ice. But there was life on Earth then. And that life wasn't wiped out by snowball Earth. It just, you know, had to sit there and, you know, live at the bottom of the oceans for a while. But, you know, a lot of life, well, all life was down in the oceans anyhow. So, you know, it didn't wipe out Earth. It wasn't fatal. Okay, so all these things, yes, they might be an inconvenience or they might not be. But in any case, none of them stopped life on Earth. 
none of them stopped life on Earth. So I, I really don't think that Earth is really all that special. Well, uh, Professor Brownlee goes on, in fact, on and on and on, as I found <laughs> out interviewing him. Uh, he also says that uh, microbial life could, in fact, be quite common throughout the universe, but intelligent life, well, take a look at the dinosaurs, he says. Uh, you know, we've had life forms with uh, spinal cords and uh, nervous systems for hundreds of millions of years on the Earth, but humans, only humans on the Earth, even on the Earth with such ideal conditions, it took uh, hundreds of millions of years for that for humans to get off the ground. And even then, there were many times when humanity may have been wiped out. There were only a few thousand of us, uh, you know, 100,000 years ago to create the entire human race. The human race could have been wiped out many times uh, during certain bottlenecks in our evolution. So he was basically saying that intelligent life is extremely rare, even if you have microbial life being common. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, he's right in that this is a controversial area. Uh, I think even more controversial than, than the, the question of whether you can get complex life on a lot of planets. I don't think that's so con controversial myself. But just because I give you a million planets with life, right, and you let them cook for a few billion years, there is a legitimate question. What fraction of them will ever cook up something as clever as, you know, as we are? <laughs> and, and we are clever compared to the most critters around, right? Um, that's debatable, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, but in any case, I mean, you know, we don't know because we, don't, we still don't understand fully how, or even partially really, how intelligence, uh, evolved on Earth. What was it that, that produced intelligence on Earth? If it's uh, a mechanism that was just very rare in the sense of being accidental or contingent upon a lot of special circumstances, then maybe he's right. Maybe you got lots and lots of life out there. Maybe Captain Kirk takes the Starship Enterprise out into space and finds lots and lots of life in the galaxy, mm -hmm. but it's all stupid. Mm -hmm. okay. that's, that's one possibility. But on the other hand, all the uh, studies that have been done about how intelligence arose on Earth suggest that, well, what drove it was nothing that you wouldn't expect elsewhere. And sure, it took a long time before you got this far, but you needed some, some preconditions. You needed warm-blooded animals with a high metabolic rate. You know, you, ne you needed all sorts of, of uh, sort of biological developments. And then, in the last 50 million years, which, of course, is fairly short in the history of the planet, but in the last 50 million years, a lot of species have gotten smarter. Uh, it's it, you know, obviously Homo sapiens, but you know, and, and obviously our simian relatives, right? Chimps are pretty clever, but you know, birds are pretty clever. Uh, even even octopi are fairly clever. Uh, whales and dolphins are fairly clever. There, there's been a, an increase in intelligence among you know a handful, a couple of handfuls of species in the past 50 million years. It isn't just one species that got smarter. Now we got smarter than they did, but if you you know if you, you were to visit Earth two million years ago. Uh, you would have found that the smartest things on the planet were not our simian ancestors, but some white flanked dolphins. They had the highest IQs, and uh, they didn't leave a lot of literature, but you know, they, they were the smartest things around. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it does seem that intelligence is actually kind of a, a fairly natural product of evolution once you get to a certain level of complexity. This, this is controversial, but at least the indications are that intelligence is not some sort of miracle. Okay, well, shifting gears a little bit, uh, we also had uh, Professor Dan Wertheimer from the University of California at Berkeley on our airwaves a few years ago talking about SETI at home. That is, on your home PC, you can get a chunk, a chunk of this radio data and have your PC via its sc screensaver uh, basically crunch some of the numbers to look for intelligent signals. Uh, what's been the progress uh, for SETI at home in the last several years? Well, SETI at Home was intended originally just to be a very short-lived project, maybe for a year or two. But it was so popular that it's, it's continued. They expected, 
you know, maybe 50,000 people, maybe 50,000 people, would download this free bit of software so that when they walk away from their computer, you know, it's still humming away, that it would, it would uh, process a certain amount of SETI data that it would download from the, uh, the servers at the University of California at Berkeley. Well, more than 5 million people have downloaded that software. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, uh, you know, that's 100 times as many as they expected. And about a third of them use it at any given time. What they do is they distribute a little bit of the data they collect from the radio telescope down in Puerto Rico, the Arecibo radio telescope, which a lot of a lot of listeners may have seen in the movie Contact, movie GoldenEye. You know, it's a, it's a great movie star. Now, they, they distribute about 1% or 2% of the data they collect there on the, the web for people using the screensaver. But the point is that there are so many people doing this with their home computers that it is by far the largest computer project, of, the largest computer, if you will, in the world right now. And those data are looked at extraordinarily carefully. So, you know, it's really a very, very fine-toothed comb. They look at all the rest of their data right there at Berkeley using, you know, the local Berkeley computers, but they can't look as carefully as they can at this small fraction of the data, which, you know, are the prime data, if you will. Now, has anybody found something? Well, people find stuff all the time, of course. Uh, if you do these sorts of work, uh, this sort of work and you're using a big antenna like the one in Puerto Rico, you find signals all the time. After all, you've got this huge antenna. It's collect, connected to a, a receiver that has millions of channels. Of course you pick up signals. But, of course, the question is, is that ET on the line or is that AT&T on the line? Is it just interference from a telecommunications satellite or something like that? Now, what the guys at Berkeley do is they, they look at all the signals that have been found by people using their computers at home, and they, they look for those cases where a signal has been found more than once, in fact, more than twice. If a signal has been found three different times, Right? Not just by three different people, that doesn't count, but by, you know, at, at three different times. In other words, the telescope was pointing at some spot on the sky and they find a signal. And then, you know, three months later comes back to that same point. And somebody else finds it again at that same frequency, at that same spot on the sky. If that, if that happens three or more times, then they say, hey, look, that's, you know, kind of interesting from a statistical point of view. That suggests it's not just a noise spike. It you know, looks like a real signal. And then they will go down to the telescope and will deliberately look at that spot on the sky for a long period of time, for a few minutes, whatever it takes, until they can verify whether the signal is still there. They have done that on several occasions. So far, no dice. But on the other hand, it is quite possible that somebody running SETI at home could, in fact, find the signal that would entitle them to pick up a prize in Stockholm and have uh, dinner with the king. And that, of course, would be perhaps one of the pivotal events in uh, human evolution on the planet Earth. I think so. Well, let me ask you now the $64,000 question. What do you as an individual think N is, N being the number of intelligent uh, uh, planetary systems out there, and where are they? Yes, well, <laughs> of course, I don't know what N is either, but um, I, I tend to agree with Frank Drake, who still works here at the SETI Institute. His office is down the hall from mine. And uh, Frank is now, I guess he'll be 75 in another month or so. But he's still as active as he ever was. And uh, he's a pretty smart guy, one of the cleverest guys I've I've, I've known. And if you ask Frank, look, um, you know, this is your equation. What do you think that is? He'll say, well, I think it's probably around 10,000, which is kind of a conservative number compared to Carl Sagan, who thought it was a few million. I think Isaac Asimov thought it was uh, two-thirds of a million. You know, so uh, Frank is saying about 10,000. Well, if it's anywhere between 1,000 and, well, some bigger number, if it's more than 1,000, then that means that the nearest aliens are within, on the order of 1,000 light years. 
okay, to us. Now, keep in mind that if you look at the whole Milky Way galaxy, it's about 100,000 light years across. So this is, you know, only like 1% of the way across the galaxy. 1,000 light years. That's far if you're trying to drive it in your Honda, but it isn't so far for a radio telescope. If that's the case, and, and it really is, you know, it, it, it's up for grabs. Obviously, we don't know. But if, if that's the case, then our experiments should find a signal within the next 20 years because within the next 20 years, we will have kind of searched stars out to that distance. So uh, that's my bet. But on the other hand, we're not going to know the answer until we know the answer. And what are your thoughts about, well, where are they? A SETI so far has picked up nothing. Is that just a question of lack of sensitivity of the SETI antennas, lack of detectors, or is it because they're shy out there in outer space, or maybe they don't exist? Or, well, what are your thoughts about uh, why we haven't picked up any messages yet? Yeah, well, this, this, you know, I think that the answer is very simple. I think it's simply because we've, we've, we've not combed enough uh, galactic real estate yet. Uh, but, you know, there are people who say, no, 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 the fact that you haven't heard anything yet means something. It means that they're not out there because any society that was more advanced than ours, and, and most of them are going to be more advanced than ours. I mean, if intelligence really does occur on planets in a fashion that's not extraordinarily rare, then most of the societies out there will be much older than ours because, after all, you know, we're the new kids on the block. The Earth has only been here for four and a half billion years. The the galaxy has been around for like three times that length of time. So most of the stars out there are older than the sun. So if they're really advanced, then they should have been able by now to maybe colonize big chunks of the galaxy. Who knows? They should have been able to spread around. They should have, you know, remote transmitters. They should be very easy to find, right? And the fact that we haven't found them that sounds like some sort of paradox. In fact, this, this little argument is often called the Fermi paradox because Enrico Fermi, uh, the, the physicist, the Italian-American physicist, was the first to point this out over a lunch. Yet uh, I think it was Los Alamos in 1950. But in any case, uh, that's his argument. I don't think I buy into that. I don't think it's a matter of them being shy, being coy. Maybe some of them are shy. Maybe most of them are shy. But if only one society has a powerful transmitter out there, then, then we have a chance of success. I think the reason we haven't found them yet is that we haven't looked very carefully. And all of that is going to change in the next few decades mostly because of the march of technology. Well, my personal point of view is that if there's an anthill in the country and you're walking down this country road and you bump into this anthill, uh, do you go down to the ants and say, I bring you trinkets, I bring you beads, I bring you nuclear energy and DNA technology, <laughs> or perhaps maybe you step on a few of them? Yeah, probably. I, you know, I get phone calls uh, just about every other day from people who have their own explanation of why we haven't heard anything, and it's usually because the aliens are put off by our environmental degradation and our, you know, threatening one another with war and all that sort of stuff. But indeed, I think that from their point of view, none of that matters terribly much any more than whatever wars the ants are getting into concern me. They don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, uh, another stream of thought says that we're looking in the wrong place. Uh, for example, take a look at email. Email is compressed, email is broken up and goes through many cities and then recombined at the other end. So if an alien civilization had even a primitive, even a primitive email system and we were eavesdropping on it, we wouldn't hear much at all. Uh, the signals would be compressed in a way that we don't understand. They'd be fragmented and redistributed and reassembled someplace else in a code we don't understand. So we could be listening in to messages that are teeming with intelligent uh, 
uh, things in it, but we are simply too primitive to understand it. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I'm sure there's a lot of truth in that. I don't expect that we are going to understand any of the messages, even to the point of being able to sort of break them up into the bits that uh, they, you know, that, that make them up. And it, it's also true that you know there are all sorts of methods for encoding information, for sending bits around that uh, are fairly sophisticated that, that we use. For example, your cell phone tends to use what is called spread spectrum technology, where the signal is spread all over the dial instead of being concentrated in one spot. That's very hard to find with a radio receiver unless you know all the details of their communications uh, schemes. So, yeah, there are lots and lots of ways they can make the signal hard to find, but in the end it comes down to this. If they have a transmitter on, that puts a certain amount of energy somewhere in the radio dial, somewhere in the radio spectrum. And we don't worry about how it's encoded or what the message is or anything like that. We don't worry about the message when we do our SETI experiments. We're just trying to determine, is a transmitter on? We're looking for narrowband components to the signal, it's called. A little, you know, lots of excess energy, if you will, at certain spots on the radio dial. If we find that, we, of course, don't know what they're saying, whether it's something profound or whether it's something trivial like used car ads. We don't care about any of that. We're simply looking for evidence that their transmitters are on because, after all, that's, that's the proof that we're after. Okay. Now let's talk about flying saucers. Uh, of course, the distances between stars are enormous. Uh, it would take the Voyager spacecraft thousands and thousands of years to reach the nearest star. But that's because, you know, we're kind of primitive on this scale that we're talking about. Uh, another civilization could easily be a million years ahead of us. And so the next question is, is there a law of physics preventing a civilization millions of years ahead of us from making contact with us? Is there any brick wall that prevents an advanced civilization from making contact? Well, uh, Michelle, you're the physicist, and you mm -hmm. know that there isn't. There's That's no true. physics that, that prevents us. Mm -hmm. Now, there may be some physics that makes it very hard. Mm -hmm. uh, conventional physics, uh, if you use, you know, rockets in the, the normal sense, the, the problem there is our rockets, of course, don't go fast enough, but, you know, they're more advanced, they can build better rockets, but when you get up to very high speeds, and you really do need speeds that are comparable to the speed of light if you want to get from one star to the next in less than a century, which sounds to me like something you might want to do no matter who you are. However, I should point out that there is some danger here. You see, some scientists are so frustrated that we don't pick up any signals from alien civilizations in outer space that they want to compensate for this, and they want to reach out. They want to advertise our position and location in the galaxy. We welcome you. They want to send a message. They want to send a message saying that, yes, here we are located on the planet Earth, third planet from the sun in the Virgo arm of the Milky Way galaxy, come and get us. Well, I think until we know exactly what the aliens want, that is a very bad idea. Because when societies collide, sometimes, sometimes the results are not very pleasant. Like I mentioned, when the Aztecs met Cortez, the Aztecs made the biggest mistake in ancient history. They thought that Cortez was a god, when actually he was a bloodthirsty pirate who then proceeded to destroy the great Aztec civilization. So my point of view is, what's the rush? I mean, the aliens aren't going to go away. If we don't make contact with them, then perhaps there's a reason for that. We shouldn't reach out until we know what their intentions are. 
Until we know what they're all about, I think we should keep our location and our identity a secret. A secret for our own self-interest until we can figure out what do the aliens want. Do they want something from us? Are we a nuisance to them? Or are they simply just curious? Who knows? But my attitude is, there's no rush. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time. Once again, our special guest today has been Dr. Seth Shostak, one of the directors of the SETI Institute, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And if you want to find out more about this program, Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku, then go to my Facebook site, that's Michio Kaku, or go on the internet. My website is mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. And we have 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. So find out what all the excitement is about. Get a copy of my latest New York Times bestseller called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Is it possible that one day we'll find a single equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that would allow us to, quote, read the mind of God? Is there an overarching theme? Is there rhyme or reason to this universe? Can everything you see around you be derived from perhaps just a single equation, the God Equation? Well, find out by getting a copy of my book, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. And just remember that Nobel Prize winners have split on this question. The leading candidate for this theory of everything is something called string theory, but that in itself is controversial. And find out what the controversy is about by picking up my book, The God Equation. Good day.